Happy holidays, WiseCast family. It's Dr. Amber Miller here, and today I'm flying solo. As we head into the new year, we decided to take a little rest by giving you a throwback episode. Today, I wanted to reshare our previous episode with Sheta Chakraborty. But before I get into that, I wanted to plug a couple of the amazing things that we are doing at The Wisest Women. First, we are in the beginning stages of trying to become a nonprofit and have launched our first fundraiser. We hope that during this season of giving, you take a minute to support our cause as we work to inspire and empower women through real conversations like the one we are sharing with you today. Additionally, we have started the Wisest Children, which is us sharing our love of science with our kids and the younger generation, and maybe even the older generation too. I see you parents. We want everyone to know how much fun science is and have the mindset that anyone who wants to can do science. We are hoping that by starting with this younger generation, we will create a new genre of scientists who are empowered at an early age and will help move the needle for equity in STEM. The latest video, Singing Glasses, is going live today. Make sure to check it out on our YouTube channel. But back to our episode with Sheta. I still think she is probably one of the coolest guests we have had on our show. And re-listening to our episode had me nodding my head and really digging in and making some new goals as we head into the new year. My new aha moments really revolve around two main themes. First, science communication. We start the conversation with Sheta by confessing that none of her family and friends really understood what she did and she had to figure out how to articulate her complicated job to a more general audience. This made me rethink the elevator pitch for yourself. New goal number one for this girl, since I have just changed jobs and it's now much harder to explain to people. But also we talked about the concept that as scientists, and, and as scientists, we do love our data, but we can't rely on everyone drawing the same and appropriate conclusions or interpretations just by showing them the data. We have to create a story that is relevant to the specific audience we are working with. This also hit home as our interns have recently expressed that the top leadership skill they want to develop is better communication. So this episode's for them too. And the second theme is the importance of your tribe, which we also talked about this season, which is season two, and it was episode six, Ambition is Contagious. And I think this is a message that we can't hear enough. Be proud of who you are, own it, and find the people that will support it. If it doesn't exist yet, create it and start a movement like Sheta did with Radical Centrist. We hope you enjoy this new take on our previous episode with Sheta Chakraborty. Welcome back to WiseCast, the podcast for women in STEM and education. I am Dr. Richa Chandra. And I am Dr. Amber Miller. Our episode today features Dr. Sheta Chakraborty, who is a renowned risk behavioral scientist and science policy advisor. She has been a guest on many major television networks and is the co-host of a podcast called Risky Behavior. But before we jump into all of the great conversations we had with her, Richa, how are you dressed for success today? I'm wearing a blue, black, and silver striped sweater. Reminds me of the different layers of the atmosphere. You know, you know I was going to do this, right? <laughs> Dr. Chakraborty has pointed out that 
weather and climate are different things because, you know, a lot of people will complain that, oh, it's so cold. Global warming can't be actually happening. And she's very bold and elegantly points out to people on different news networks, no matter where she is, whatever platform, that that's not the same thing. So Amber, how are you inspired and how are you dressed for success today? Well, you know, our title of the episode is Giving a Crap About Melting Ice Cap. So I'm wearing like a little bit of a Lucy beanie today in my um, attempt to go with our our theme for the recording, but also because I was a little bit lazy and didn't want to deal with the back of my hair. So um, this kind of cover covers up both aspects for today. Um, like an ice cap. <laughs> yeah, like it's a little white. So it's like an ice cap. I love it. Yep. So that is my um, accessory for, for dressing for success. We're so excited to have you. You're doing so much. It's hard to pen down a description of all your work and all your reach. Anyone who does a cursory scroll through of your LinkedIn would have a major jaw-dropping moment. Um, It's just phenomenal. You're a professor at Columbia University. You regularly appear on major networks, news networks like CNN, BBC, Fox News, to name a few. You help fund global nonprofits. You publish in peer-reviewed journals. And from listening to your podcast, you're fun, witty, and approachable. And I'm sure I'm still missing about 10 additional lines from your resume. It's hard to imagine what it's like to be you when you meet someone for the first time. So how do you introduce yourself? It's so funny you ask that because I gave my TED Talk um, several months ago, and I had to go through this exercise of trying to really quickly and efficiently explain who I am and what I do, right? Because you, you're you meant to just get to the point and uh, really clearly articulate to the public what it is that you want them to understand and know about you. So as part of preparing for my TED Talk, I, I ran a little experiment just asking my friends and family, you know, the people closest to me, what it is, I, what they thought it was that I do. <laughs> and the answers varied from, uh, my mom said I worked at a tank So she didn't say think tank. She just said, you work at a tank, like an aquarium. My father said I was a social worker and then admitted to me that he had created a profile for me on an Indian marriage website known as shadi.com, where he put my profession in as social worker rather than social scientist. So they got one of the words, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, my friends were all like, oh, you're a cognitive, you're a behavioral therapist. So I'm a cognitive behavioral scientist. So the cognitive was right in there. Behavioral was right in there. But no, I'm not a therapist. I do that therapy is one-on-one interaction between a clinically trained professional and their patient. And I do not want or ask anyone to come and tell me what they're going through. There are people trained in that. That is not me. (laughs) So I realized nobody has any idea what I do. (laughs) So it's a very appropriate and timely question. So what I decided to do was, you know, run through some branding and really finding the keywords that Um, explain my day-to-day and what my intention is and what I hope to accomplish. And I came to the conclusion of saying, you know, I am, I'm a behavioral scientist. That in itself is not well known because it's a relatively new field um, coming from psychology and the merging of psychology and economics in the 1970s known as behavioral economics. Um, But behavioral science went beyond just kind of understanding why people deviate from making rational decisions, but to also explain why despite all the best science evidence and data, people, people's perceptions do not align to the reality of that data, of that, um, of that risk. And so the field is really there to close the gap between perception and reality and understand because there's a gap between risk perception and risk reality, um, what does that actually mean in terms of 
predicting and understanding behaviors? And how do we better align those behaviors with the reality of the risks that we're facing? I personally apply it to climate change, to infectious disease outbreaks. I started my career looking at prescription drug taking um, response to infectious disease, but it is a field that can be applied across all sectors. So it started in finance. I did it and I applied it to healthcare. I've moved on to climate change and it's many ripple effects, including infectious disease. But the reason the term still remains tricky, despite my best efforts at explaining it, is because it's uh, it's very multidisciplinary and it's also called different things in different places. So here in the US, we say behavioral science, but my PhD is actually from the UK. And even though I've studied exactly the same thing in the US and in the UK, in the UK, it's called risk management. So if it's not confusing already, I my PhD is in risk management, um, but I'm a cognitive behavioral scientist specializing in closing the risk perception and risk reality gap and getting people to make better decisions for themselves, their families, their, and their communities that is aligned to the science, the data, and the evidence. That's awesome. That would be really difficult to explain to Indian parents. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble explaining what I do to mine, so I can imagine that that's challenging. Well, and I think like when you hear risk management, for some reason, for me, I think the business sector, like the business side of like risk management for a company or a corporation, and that's not like really at all what, what you do, but you say, you know, behavioral scientists, I get it better, but that's because we're, <laughs> we're scientists. So we kind of understand that a little bit more, but yeah, I laugh because my parents still don't know what I do either. Please don't. <laughs> You're in good company, my friends. This It's not fun, but it's also so important. So I'm grateful that you you are, you know, forging the way forward of explaining what all of this means to the public. This is important. People have to know. And this kind of segues into another one of our favorite topics, which is imposter syndrome, which we've gotten into a few times on the podcast already. Um, so we're excited to have an expert here with us to really weigh in. So we want to know what your thoughts are about imposter syndrome for women in STEM. It's, it's a great question because I've really been encountering it more and more frequently, actually, especially during this um, COVID lockdown, um, because a lot of my friends are thinking about changing their careers, not just friends, those that I mentor as well. Uh, and it really doesn't matter where you are in your career trajectory. There's always, there's always something new to be learned. So whether you're taking on a new subject, a new hobby, exploring something, it's, that is like that pivot point or that, that, um, that change or that new pursuit can result in imposter syndrome. And some of the smartest people I know and who, who are experts and have deep dividend into, um, into their fields are still experiencing what it's like to be encountered with new information and be in a new environment where it's they are no longer the authority that they're used to being. Um, an example of this is uh, this new app that's just come out called Clubhouse. Have you guys, are you guys familiar with Clubhouse at all? I I heard about it and I, I've heard that I need to get on there because all the students will be on there. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating because it's just, it's like, it's a great place to meet people who have deep expertise, but then it's experts in counting, encountering experts across um, disciplines that you wouldn't normally in the real world. So it's an opportunity to like virtually really get to know different people across different sectors. And that's, I feel like that there's like virtual examples of imposter syndrome all the time. What you're really asking is about what is it, those of us who have really put in the time, effort, money, resources, and we still feel we don't have, we shouldn't have a seat at the table and we don't deserve to um, be heard. And why is it women in particular and minorities in particular? Well, there's like the historical context of just being disenfranchised. And I think we are, 
we're constantly combating the the infrastructure in which we have been uh, we've developed our talents, and it's it's an incredibly exciting time to see so much overhaul happening in that. And I think the next generation and the generation after it of women will less and less have these experiences in imposter syndrome. And what I do and tell myself every day, and it, it is something I encounter every day, is that little bit of what am I doing? Can I actually pull this off? Do I deserve to be here? Um, and that's normal. And so first and foremost, it's to let people know that it's a very normal feeling. And then to tell yourself uh, very affirmatively, you absolutely deserve to be here. You wouldn't be at this point in this moment where you're even having that feeling of insecurity if you didn't do all the right things to be in that moment of having that insecurity. And I think uh, we're really hard on ourselves, especially minority women. So and we're talking about women and minorities. The combination of women and minority is <laughs> is where I fall, Richa, so do you, right? And yeah. so, yeah. And so it's just, I culturally, um, time-wise, in terms of historical context, it's just a really exciting time and a time that we need to look forward to in the future of this no longer being an issue. But in the current moment, just reaffirm that we there's a reason we're here. And that feeling is actually a positive because it just goes to show that it's going to be like a vestige of the past going forward. I like your take on that, you know, kind of reimagining how we're we're looking at it as, you know, it's normal, first of all. And then secondly, that you're feeling it because you've arrived in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about your real true passion. Let's talk about the planet. <laughs> Let's talk about climate change, melting ice caps, all that. Um, tell us everything you're doing in your seat. Yeah, so as a behavioral scientist, the complicated interdisciplinary definition that I we kicked off with, I uh, left academia in um, 2011 when I moved from the UK following my postdoctorate back to New York City. And I was a professor, a, an adjunct professor at Columbia University. I was teaching carbon management and decision science at the time to master students. And I actually knew nothing about climate change because again, I had done my doctorate and my postdoctorate all in pharmaceutical drugs, biotech, and understanding patient behavior and why decisions patients were making were resulting in adverse outcomes um, for themselves and that the ripple effects that that had on all the correlated actors, like the pharmaceutical industry, like the regulators and society generally. Because if you have patients who, for example, are not filling their prescriptions or whatever that treatment regime is that's dictated by the doctor, then you're going to have increased hospitalizations, which is a reactive, more expensive um, outcome for a patient that this, that society, especially in the UK with public health care, will field. So I, that was my field. So when I moved back to the US, I was still teaching behavioral science and researching behavioral science at Columbia. And I was asked to teach this master's class, <laughs> but in carbon management, like why are people not managing their energy footprints better? Um, and not just individuals, but companies all the way to multinationals. And I was like, I don't know anything about climate change. It was a field like it, it's peripherally related to infectious disease. So I was actually looking at how climate change links to infectious disease because I was coming from the healthcare space. But ultimately, I've come to the conclusion that um, infectious disease is actually a ripple effect of climate change. But we can get into that. So now I'm teaching carbon management, having never studied carbon management. <laughs> to master students who tended to be practitioners in their field and experts, right? And it was an incredible experience. It was two-way learning. And I think that's important to remember. In terms of education, STEM education especially, there's so much to be gleaned and learned from one another. And I highly encourage that. It's as much as it is of me teaching the field to the students, it's about students interacting with each other and then teaching the teacher as well. That's, that's how learning should be. 
And so once I learned the reality of the planet warming um, and all of its ripple effects, it was over for me. What I realized is if it wasn't for, um, if it, because the planet is warming, it is so critical if you have the ability to contribute to addressing that crisis and its ripple effects, that you absolutely must. And especially relevant for those of us who pursue um, STEM fields, um, but it doesn't matter. Anyone in any sector has a role to play in this because if you, you're you a stakeholder, if you care about the air you're breathing in, the water you're drinking, the food you're eating, then you have a role to play in addressing the climate crisis. So for me, I really, there was no coming back from it once I realized the, the real dire situation that we were in. Um, at the same time, Columbia University made it clear that I was too interdisciplinary to get a tenure track position. As, as incredible as some of these institutions are, there's still, there's a lot of archaic um, <laughs> kind of lasting impacts there. Like, oh, if you're not an economics professor, if you're not a psychologist, there's no room for you. Like, what is the behavioral scientist? So that's something definitely that was challenging that I dealt with. And at the same time, I got the opportunity to come to Washington DC and actually see some of this research go into actual policymaking. So I was super excited um, to be able to move to Washington and get into policy and get into media communication. And so what I started doing was the reinforcement of um, both policy and communicating to the public around issues related to climate science. So lobbying through think tanks like Atlantic Council, like the Center for Climate and Security, where I'm fellows, um, the, what I do is support evidence-based policymaking around climate change. Um, and at the same time, communicate to various publics, whether it's the private sector, whether it's individuals, publics, you know, that range in demographic all the way from West Coast to East Coast, gender, color, all of that, communicating to them in a way that they're going to actually understand um, the information because it shouldn't be the same messaging to everyone. That's where we've really gone wrong and ultimately supporting the policy that we're putting forward. So both of those things are really critical and reinforce each other. So that's what I do now currently for a living. Um, part of that in the moment is transitioning, uh, helping the transition team, the Biden-Harris transition team, to ensure that they, they are very successful in implementing their platform in the first 100 days. There's an incredible team of people here, not just me, and everybody is very, uh, very much coming at this from an evidence-based um, approach where it doesn't matter what all the public interests, or sorry, what the, what the various interest groups are doing or saying, we are in this for the public interest and we are evidence first and foremost. So that's really important, but at the same time, you need to get the public behind you. But I also think, I don't, I don't know, I think it's also hard for, for like maybe Rich and myself where we love, like give us data so that we can kind of make our decision, like give us all the data and we can look at that and we can see for ourselves. But it's hard for me to hear, you know, like people don't believe the data. It's like, what is the data? Like, why don't we believe the data? And, and so, I don't know, I know it's not, it's a little bit off tangent, but like, it's got to be hard when you, you know, come across trying to convince people, showing them the data and telling the story, but like, what are the challenges behind that? Or why are people resistant to like believing the actual data that, that's out there for, for all of these things, I guess? Amber, that's not off tangent at all. I mean, that's that's the core of what I do. That's the core of the, the challenges that we've had this entire time and why we're finding ourselves in this situation of data not being enough, science not being enough, people interpreting it as they wish because of the existing beliefs that they hold to be true. And those existing beliefs known as schemas or mental models vary from group to group to group. And if you are just disseminating top down um, a knowledge dump, a science dump, a data dump, 
and assuming that everybody's end interpretation and then behavioral outcome is going to be the same. That's what we've been doing. And that's why we're in the situation of extreme polarization in the United States and ultimately very little climate progress that needed to have been made years ago for us to reach our lofty goals set by the Paris Accords. So your your question is actually the nail on the head. I mean, that's what we have to address. This is what science has done poorly. And I love my science community, um, but this is something that I'm very outspoken on that I really make it a point to get go on about if given the opportunity, which is we need to incentivize scientists, but really entrenched in that is communication science. Um, because ultimately, once you understand risk reality and you understand human behavior, the way to close that gap, which is always there, is through science communication, effective evidence-based communication that you know is going to result in accurate interpretation of the original message and ultimately in behavioral outcomes. That's not done. So there's an entire science behind communication and it's not actually, and it's talked about a lot at science conferences um, and my fellow scientists research it and study it, but are still um, are still guilty of poor communication. And really what that is, is effectively tailoring messages that is aligned to correcting erroneous beliefs that exist in people's mental models. So for example, we want to, we want to convince like very generically, we want to convince the U S public to take, to change their behaviors around adopting energy efficient practices in their homes, for example, heating and cooling, let's say go on the renewable grid. And how do you communicate that to a white middle-aged male in that lives in Ohio and has never been out of state versus a first-generation immigrant's child in New York City. It's the same information. It's the same science. It's the same intended outcome that policymakers want, that scientists want. But if those messages are the same, you know you are shooting yourself in the foot. And that's what we're not doing. People are in their respective groups, their tribes, if you will. This is how humans have evolved. Since the dawn of our species, we have been cognitively wired to become part of a tribe and to commit to the various identities of that tribe. Never in history would you think, has it been the case and is shocking that right now that we can tell if somebody somebody's political identity based on whether or not they believe in climate change, based on whether or not they're willing to wear a mask, whether or not they're willing to protest outside for Black Lives Matter. Based on that one, pick one of those, the reason for that is because it's all intercorrelated because once somebody commits to a tribe and that's our intrinsic need is to be part of a group, it's, it's our, it, the whole point is survival. We're born with that need to be part of a social group so we survive. And our brains have unchanged from that, from that early wiring that our ancestors needed to save them, you know, not live past the age of 30 and to ensure survival so that they could eat, hunt and procreate. That, that's really all it was. Things have changed since then. We've got this really complex risk landscape that we operate in now. For us to still stay true to the nature, our human nature, we have to commit to our tribal identities. And what that looks like now in modern times is, okay, I'm I'm a conservative. I am, that means what conservatives are saying mostly that they're not gonna accept the climate change data. Um, they're saying that mask is, wearing masks isn't that serious. Okay, sure. And I'm gonna check off all those boxes. That is what we are contending with and dealing with. So the way you communicate to that person versus the way you communicate to somebody who has a very different identity, um, but you want them to have the same behavioral outcome, that is what we need is to go in and understand 
what their mental model is, what their perceptions of the world is, what's important to them, and and find ways to communicate so we can close those gaps. So the argument that should be made to that middle-aged Caucasian male in Ohio should be an economic uh, framing of the benefits of switching to renewable in terms of growth for the immediate economy and then future opportunities for their children, for example. Whereas the communication to a first-generation immigrant in New York City could be a lot more along the progressive arguments around this is important, it's ethical, it's uh, there is a environmental justice component to it. Those two messages, again, the outcome will be the same, but the messages really have to be custom tailored to the person that you're communicating it to. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're just not doing it. I mean, I think it's also becoming more and more difficult because the other thing I've realized that you can't predict someone's, um, you know, whether they're right wing, left wing, conservative, liberal, just based on looking at them anymore. You know, it's not based on the color of your skin, your gender. I'm surprised constantly (laughs) by what people's political leanings are based on, you know, a few of these. um, Yes, I I think it's becoming extra challenging. Isn't it insane? You can tell if they're wearing a mask, which way they're leaning, right? Since when? Did wearing a mask become the symbol of your political identity? It's crazy. It's, it, it just goes to show how deep-rooted our need to belong to a group is. And we haven't overcome that, despite the fact that the world has progressed incredibly since we should have cared about that that's, that much. Yeah. You call yourself a radical centrist and talk about how people lash out because they can't help but label you as right wing or left wing, depending on the stance you take on scientific debates. You definitely embrace this, which we, of course, love and have kind of touched on right in our conversation already um, following data driven science policymaking. But how do you handle the fact that you, you know, you get labeled into these different groups all of the time? You know, it was really hard initially um, going into media because every single network producer would be like, are you liberal or are you conservative? And I've really never identified with a political party. As a scientist, as you as you know, as your listeners will know, we, we're trained to be apolitical. We're scientists. I'm not a liberal scientist. I'm not a conservative scientist. I'm a scientist. <laughs> Can I just be a scientist? But you're forced to take a political leaning because that's unfortunately where the media landscape is. Um, science has become part of the problem in that sense. It's, it's also become politicized. And so uh, <laughs> you have to you have to choose a side. So rather than give in to that, I decided I'm, I'm a centrist, because if you look at the data, both sides have gotten it wrong. It is not just that liberals are always correct <laughs> in terms of um, in terms of looking at the at the numbers behind some of the societal issues that are rampant, um, nor are the conservatives always correct. So I have said I'm a centrist and I say radical in that I'm radically committed to facts and to data and to numbers and to um, science above all else. And so, yeah, if a network producer says, uh, you know, what kind of scientist are you? I'm like radically centrist, damn, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Which I love and I'm totally gonna use all the time now because it. It we, need to, we, need to create, we need to create a little, a, a little community um, and just spread it as much as possible in that sense. We don't have enough neutral voices in the media. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems, even following um, some of the more recent, and I'm in Washington, DC, so you can hear the sirens in the background, but even following whether we're talking about Black Lives Matter protests or the Capitol insurrection that happened, there's still very polarized views in the media about it. Nobody is actually coming at it and talking about what are the actual base rate statistics of the various things that have happened that have caused these kinds of then 
um, responses by the public. We're even talking about COVID, which should just be relatively straightforward in terms of cost-benefit analysis of the primary impacts related to not just death, but you know, long-term negative adverse events from having COVID-19, um, and also the secondary impacts, the tertiary impacts. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody's nobody brings a cost-benefit analyst on air. <laughs> That's right. all I want. <laughs> That's all I want to hear. So what comes next for, for Dr. Shetha Chakraborty? Can we also talk about your dating life a little? <laughs> you mean the social worker profile I have on Shadi.com? <laughs> <laughs> I told my dad, I was just like, he's like, look, you're getting so many hits. And I was like, oh, amazing. <laughs> I, I'm a little concerned that they're not going to be getting what they were promised, however. <laughs> um. So I hope to continue to advise the government, perhaps in a more meaningful way. Um, I've been nominated for to be in the administration, the Biden-Harris administration, and that doesn't necessarily mean it would happen right away or, or ever. But if I was offered a role to serve as a civil servant, um, especially part of this administration that I highly admire, I would definitely take it. And I encourage anyone listening to this, especially those of you who are pursuing STEM, to at some point in your career, if given the opportunity, to, to be a public servant. I think it's critical we give back and we ensure that science and evidence is what is the motivator behind policy, especially as new issues and risks arise related to privacy, related to AI, related to more impacts around climate change. Uh, we, need, we need to make sure that there's a consensus, science consensus, and actionable next steps that are being developed, and that is how policy is being decided. If I get the opportunity, I will definitely take it, and I really hope that everybody listening will also consider it, because we we really, really need smart young women to think about that, to pursue it, and to serve. I um, have a podcast. I have a few television shows, honestly, in the works, which I'm, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> and, you know, production's been on hold, obviously, because of COVID lockdown, but the goal is to get as much um, science out to the public as possible in a way that is easily understood, digested, and is entertaining. There's no reason science should be siloed so much from beauty and entertainment and fashion. These things are not mutually exclusive. You can be a scientist, you can still care about what your makeup, how good your makeup looks, what your hair looks like, fashion, uh, celebrity, and merge all of it. There's absolutely no need to be in these silos. Let's Let's break any sort of stereotypes around that. I did a panel back in April with Joaquin Phoenix and Moby, and I actually just interviewed Moby um, for the first episode of season two of my podcast, Risky Behavior. It's actually not nearly as impossible to make these relationships and connections as one might think. I just wanted to do it and I made the ask and it worked. And so I can't even tell you how important it is to just try. It's so worth it. And then the ultimate outcome is, oh, wow, we just got Joaquin Phoenix to say climate change, you know, like to, to amplify to his millions and millions of fans. That's a huge win. And if every single one of us who's interested in doing that can do that, can you imagine the impact and the amplification we could have, especially as women, especially as minorities? Yeah, I'm, I'm awestruck <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just feel like, you know, what you're saying with, um, you know, you don't identify with with either candidate and then you feel like if you go for the Green Party or whatever, then it doesn't matter. And yeah. a lot of people feel like that. 
And so we're still forced into this, you know, having to choose between one or the other. But if we have a momentum to go towards this more radical centrist movement, then, you know, that that should be where we go in future generations. So we can actually start getting candidates that match what people want. Want. I mean, and it's hard just because, right, like the history of politics is based on kind of this, right, to bipartisan, right? Like these two different parties. And then it's only been, I don't know, because I haven't looked at the research, but recently, right? Like relatively recently that we've had the green candidate and the liberal candidates and those types of things. Um, but maybe it's just because it's still newer than Democrat and Republican that it that's why there's not quite as much of a following or a belief that like if you vote for those parties that like they have a chance, right? Because I think I mean, my parents even said, well, like, if you to vote for them, you're basically just, like, throwing your vote away, right? And there's so much, like, social pressure with that, too. Like, not just are you throwing away your vote, but, oh, you are getting the other person, the evil person, whoever, you know, depending on your stance, get, yeah. you know, get elected. And, you know, or that person is only running, like, when Kanye was, like, even in the discussion to, you know, take away votes, right? Like, But, I mean, it echoes, though, some of the stuff that she was saying in terms of, you know, your tribe and fitting in, right? It's, um, you know, my family has these set of beliefs that, like, they aren't necessarily – my dad will discuss and debate, but you, I don't think you could really ever um, change his opinion, which I feel bad saying that because he listens to the podcast. (laughs) But, like, I mean, he's open to discussion about it, and he wants us to be educated and have – you know, kind of the set of the information and and the real understanding about stuff. And he brings a lot of good perspectives that I was like, oh, I definitely wouldn't have thought about it like from from that way. Yeah, there's a I mean, there's like a striking generational divide. I feel like right now, and um, I mean, I know my my dad was like unashamedly, you know, like you can't change my mind, <laughs> right? And but he did have like a lot to offer from from his perspective, like you were saying with your dad, right? That there's some wisdom to those years, and you know. But at the same time, you know, what younger people think is also, you know, very some way, you you know, you can learn from that. Like what Shetha was saying, that it's a two way street. We can learn from and because we're getting older now, too. Right. So we're going to be we're the old ones. <laughs> right. Where we are. And so our own little tribes that we're creating, you know, we can learn from from the younger generations as well. And we should listen. And I think the two way street needs to have a better dialogue. On the next episode of WiseCast, Rags to Thesis, Dr. Alicia Volmar's story of resilience, we get to revisit with one of our previous guests and hear about how she overcame a childhood of neglect, abuse, homelessness, and found her way through her love of science to her graduate degree in structural biology. Thanks for listening to us. We would appreciate your support, so please rate, review, and subscribe to us and follow us on all our social media channels. I am Dr. Richa Chandra. And I'm Dr. Amber Miller.